As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, welcome back, or welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I mm-hmm. am Matt Tebby, joined by my friends, Christy Penley. Good day. Peace, friend. <laughs> Just one of you. One of you is a friend. You have to figure out who it is. The rest of you, mm. no peace. Mm-hmm. No peace. Uh, and Ben's... Friends. Oh, okay. There. Okay. Yeah. See how quick reconciliation happens? <laughs> and uh, especially when I'm stirring up trouble. This is the uh, gospel. And Ben, stirring Hey. Key. Yeah, it's good to be here with uh, both of you and all of you. Yeah. It is Pod- good to be here. You know, podcasts are weird. Because <clears throat> nobody, what? I mean, they're going to be with us later. They're not with us now. But they're sort of, you know, they're sort of with us. Yeah, let me tell you. In let spirit. Me, let me tell you a little anecdote about this. So we, uh, Christy has uh, let everybody know that if you mm-hmm. live around Colorado Springs and you listen to the podcast, reach out and, yes. and let's hang out, right? So yeah. we've received a number of communications from people, mostly Pony Express and Telegrams. <laughs> that they would like to, you know how mail is getting towards the Rocky Mountains. Uh, they want to meet up. So anyway, a friend of ours uh, named Steve met, reached yes. out. He's like, I live in, I think he's, does he still live in Wyoming or has he moved down to the Springs? No, no, he moved to the Springs, which is why we got to, we met yesterday. I met him and his wife and we had coffee yeah. and it was so cute. I actually offered to pay for their coffee and his wife brought her own tea bag and she, she was like, I just need hot water. <laughs> so wow. I bought him coffee. Okay. That's great. <laughs> Steve, little known story. Steve actually moved to Colorado Springs in order to be uh, close to Christy. So okay, that, that you, they just could got, get together that with that. Oh, just that is creepy. Sorry. Steve, I know Steve listens to the podcast. Steve, Steve um, and his wife, they, they, they love Christy. We, they just want to get together monthly for expressed coffee. The expressed by Ben Sternkey do not represent gravity no. leadership, nor no. Steve. Podcast. Or Steve. Sorry, Steve. No. Steve's great. But it was so fun. Yeah. It was really fun. It was fun to like meet somebody and like have you know some of the same terminology and like mm, listen yeah. to the same stuff and it's really cool. it was cool yeah um that's one of the unique kind of artifacts of this medium is that um one of the reasons we turned to podcasting was because it's really personal and intimate mm. and when you listen to a podcast you feel like you get to know the people you're listening to um one of the podcasts i listen to is conan o'brien needs a friend 
and he's got this relationship with his assistant named Sona and uh, this other guy named Matt, and they do this podcast, and they started to do these live events where they do their podcast live, like in a big theater in New York City or California, et cetera. And everybody, um, like they have a Q&A, and people stand up and they say, hey, I've listened to your podcast for five years, and I feel like I know you. I feel mm-hmm. like I feel like you are my friends, right? And that's something that a podcast, I don't know, if creates or communicates that, you know, when I read a blog post, I don't feel like necessarily – Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent time with somebody, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 It is. It's an interesting, I still, I, yeah, I still think about it. It's odd uh, and cool uh, and interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's, I'm, it is a bit weird. So I'm pretty sure like if, and when I meet Tim Mackey, which my husband knows and whatever, the, I'm going to, I'm going to hug him. Yeah. <laughs> from, from the Bible project yeah, podcast. Th- yeah. Yeah. You know, oh. I'll hug him because I've listened to him and all that kind of stuff. But that's mm-hmm. kind of how you feel. Yeah. And um, but there is some sort of cool like community that's created there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you, yeah, and you don't really have to. Um, it's not like you're you you you're intending that or mm-hmm. uh, trying to do that. It just kind of I don't know, just kind of happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's cool. It's cool. Well, uh, today on the podcast we've got uh, Karen Gonzalez. Um, We're talking to her about centering immigrants in the conversation about immigration, which... Which, you know, it kind of feels like a, well, (laughs) duh. (laughs) (laughs) But you you would think, but uh, there's a reason we need to talk about it, so... Uh, Yeah, listener probably is not uh, the listener that um, Christy said peace to. You are probably not... You are probably not surprised that there are people there there are people for whom this isn't obvious, right? Mm-hmm. That there's people who f- who think that they get to make decisions on behalf of others because they know better and because they and then they basically get to control other people's you know whether or not they get deported or sent back home. And I, you know, we do elect people to make decisions for us that maybe don't share in all of the conditions uh, of which they make decisions for. But I think there's a growing number of people that are like, you know what? I think immigrants should have a, like they have a unique perspective, a needed perspective, and maybe Mm -hmm. even a necessary perspective in how to shape things to be more just uh, and compassionate towards Mm -hmm. people like like immigrants. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. I think there's the, the the thing I appreciated about this conversation is just there. What often gets hidden in this conversation is just the humanity of the immigrants. Um, that I think if there is a basic commitment to honoring one another's humanity, like a lot of these, you know what I mean. Like a lot of these things would become policy. Certain policies would become unthinkable, mm. um, and there would be I don't know just different things happening. We would we would have to say, you know, this is, we're going to figure something out. Um, even though this feels like a, cause it, it's a really big issue, right? It's, a, it's, yeah. it's not like it's, um, it's not like uh, these policies are being made like unjust policies are not made because people are like scheming to like hurt people. You know what I mean? Like most there's, there's, aren't, <laughs> most, aren't. <laughs> most aren't scheming to hurt people, but, but you know what I mean? Like people aren't trying intentionally to hurt other people. What they're doing is protecting themselves. What they're doing is protecting their own interests. And in order to do that without great feelings of guilt, they oftentimes have to deny the humanity of others 
or ignore the stories. And so I think this just lifting up these stories, I think, confronts us with the necessity of saying we have we have to actually um, honor honor these people as humans, and we have yeah. to actually listen to what's going on here. We have to pay attention to these stories and allow that to come into how we make policies and decisions about this this issue. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting because this conversation. Uh, you'll hear kind of at the end, this conversation was a little bit triggering for me and just because of my own story of adopt adoption of kids and in their story. Anyway, long story short, I talked to people after this conversation, several people, yeah. uh, because I was, I continued to chew on it. And I think I have more to learn. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what I gained from this is, mm-hmm. man, I need to purposefully have people in my life to teach me to have these conversations, to dialogue about this stuff uh, because it's important. Yeah. Well, well, we should get into this, but I, I do, I do want to name one thing. One other thing I, I got to, I actually have to run because I've got a house guest. So Christy, you put out an APB for people in Colorado Springs <laughs> to contact you. Yeah. I, I have a guy from Slovakia in my Come house. Come on. Yeah. That's amazing. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it, he has a little more of a, he's in uh, one of my, our gravity leadership cohorts. We got to know each other over the last six months and he was coming to the States and he actually changed his flights to no way. spend an evening in Indianapolis. He's taking a bus, a Greyhound bus. This is how much he loves me. He's taking a Greyhound bus <laughs> <laughs> to Chicago. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, we're going to, we're going to hop in the car, go downtown and try to find somewhere to watch World Cup soccer this how morning. Fun. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's nice. so fun. Together. That's really cool. So, fun. so it is that's cool. Really so if you're, in, if you're in Slovakia and you want to come visit, yeah, uh, just or let me any know. Eastern European country, really. You have two yeah. options. You can go to Fishers, Indiana, <laughs> or you can come to Colorado. I'm just saying. I'm pretty sure Colorado's better. Hey, that, you, that, <laughs> uh, hey. Uh, Look, all right, Chrissy, I'm simultaneously, I'm simultaneously kind of offended by that, and mm-hmm. you're absolutely 100% right. <laughs> yep. I'd rather be in Colorado, too. It's the people, anyway. It's all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. It's so. it's not just the beautiful, beautiful mountains. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> or the lack or thereof. the free coffee. Oh, free, oh man, that's right too, Christy. Gosh, you're really laying oh, it on thick. I know. Really, all right. We should thick. We should get out of. We should get out of here. <laughs> all, right. all right, let's get in. Let's listen to Karen. Yep. Karen Gonzalez joins us today on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. She's a writer, speaker, and immigrant advocate who immigrated from Guatemala as a child. She attended Fuller Theological Seminary, where she studied theology and missiology and has worked in the nonprofit sector for 13 years. In addition to her first book, The God Who Sees Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong, she's written for Christianity Today, The Christian Century, Sojourners, and The Baltimore Sun, and she lives in Baltimore, Maryland. Today, she joins us to talk about her latest book, Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration. Karen, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you, and thanks for having me as a guest. Yeah. Well, we we were excited to have you uh, to chat about this. This is... Um, this, the subject of immigration and other things you get into in the book, including uh, refugees and asylum seekers, et cetera, is kind of near and dear to our hearts. Ben and I, we pastor a church, 
and over the last several years have had the pleasure of um, hosting some asylum seekers that we have like bailed out of detention centers and from, from Africa, a couple countries in Africa, and have gotten to know more intimately sort of the situation around immigration and asylum seeking uh, from their first person stories. Uh, and so uh, there's like a personal stake, I think, for us. Uh, there's places and peoples and names here. For us, that makes us keenly interested in this book. But maybe to start us out, for you, um, what was the genesis of this book? How did this book come to be and, and why did you write it? Sure. That's a great question. And I wrote my first book under the assumption that the reason that people uh, were believing uh, Trump's completely false rhetoric around immigrants and immigration and refugees was because they didn't know. They didn't know what the Bible said about immigrants and immigration. And I wanted to reach those people who really were, I wasn't trying to reach your Fox News crowd in any way, yeah. but the people who are trying to live as faithfully as they can and just don't know what to think about it. And so that's who I really wrote that book for. And what I realized is that it didn't matter if people had the information um, hmm. that people somehow country became more important than human beings that are made in the image of God. And so I do believe the book, um, because it was received really well, and I believe for people who were, you know, kind of on the fence and weren't sure, it was very helpful. But in terms of the people who overwhelmingly were Christians that supported uh, Donald Trump's election and his really xenophobic policies, I don't think it mattered to those people. And so mm. in that book, I, I sought to tell my story of immigration and to talk about a few of the immigrants in the Bible, including Jesus himself, who was a refugee with his parents. <laughs> and so this book that I wrote, Beyond Welcome, is really the book I wanted to write the first time. But in the first time, I was so concerned with audience and with the crisis before us uh, that Donald Trump created. And so this book is really written for people who already care about immigrants and refugees and who need to move beyond welcome and into kinship and solidarity and advocacy together and that's where this book came from. Because as I went to speak about my first book around the country, I realized that people really felt like welcome was enough. Yeah. And that's where the conversation ended for them. Well, yeah, I already care about this. Yeah. I already believe, you know, it's good. And so, well, now what? And so this is not a book about doing. There's not instructions and mm. practical guides on engaging in refugee and immigrant ministries. It's really a book about our own transformation, that the world won't be changed until we're changed and until we're able to see our shared humanity with immigrants. Mm. Yeah. Karen, you, I'd love for you to double-click on this because just like in your first book and in this book, could you just talk a little bit about what you learned in your identity as a Christian and an immigrant 
um, in the U.S. and kind of spending time in those stories as you wrote? Yeah, so part of what I learned, and I wrote a chapter about this, is how we read the Bible really matters, Mm -hmm. really has consequences that are dire for people who live on the margins of society. And it doesn't seem like it would be a huge deal, but it really is. And so, for example, for me, I never realized how many, how much movement of people there is in the scriptures. And there is a lot. And it's for the same reasons that people have always moved, have always migrated. It's always been to keep families together, to seek economic sustainability, and then, of course, to find refuge, security freedom. And so reading the Bible through those lenses really helped me to see not just myself in the scriptures, but how much God, um, God's heart is with those uh, who are forced to migrate or who migrate for different reasons. I always really felt on the outside of American society. I always felt like a guest. And I I talk about this in the book, like a perpetual guest. Mm. And it was really transformative for me to read the Bible through different lenses, through the lens of the outsider, and recognize how much it speaks to full inclusion into the family of God. Not a guest, but a member of the family who can kick up their heels and Mm. put their feet on the couch and... (laughs) Um, and so that for me was what was most, you know, I changed a lot through the writing of the book because of how much I learned about it. And so, yeah, that was, um, that was a big, a big part of this for me when I was an evangelical Christian, because that's how I came to my own faith, I guess. I had the faith imparted to me by my family. But when I made faith my own, it was in a very conservative evangelical um, space. And they always talked about the trajectory of the Bible being from, you know, being enslaved to being free or being lost to being found. That was a big one. And what I saw is that there's also a trajectory of being a stranger and then being part of the family of God. Yes. And that was an important thing to recognize as well. Yeah. And honestly, I never knew how much my imagination of faith in the evangelical circles had shaped my sense of being an outsider. Yeah. It had not helped me, even though there was a lot of talk about family of God yeah. because of the way that we read the Bible, there wasn't that for me. There was Mm. still a sense of I was on the outside. And now a word from a sponsor. Hey everybody, it's Ben. Uh, Just wanna share with you real quick about our partner campaign for 2023. We started Gravity in 2015, which feels like a lifetime ago, uh, to help Christians learn how to take love seriously as the center of our life and our mission as the people of God. And since then, we've been coaching and training leaders in a spiritual transformation framework that is both practical and reproducible. We continue to hear stories of transformation 
um, which is what it's all about um, in the lives of participants in our coaching groups and in our communities. And we're asking y'all to consider partnering with us for the next year to provide, to be able to continue to provide coaching and consulting and community to pastors, churches, and Christians uh, who need it. We will be able to use your investment to be able to offer scholarships for people who want to get into our coaching, uh, which is going to make it more accessible, we hope, for more people in this time of vocational and economic instability. We want to write another book in 2023, which is going to be about grace and truth, learning to love like Jesus and grace and truth, uh, to continue to make this message accessible to a wider audience. And your uh, partnership will also help us create more stability here at Gravity so we can continue to think creatively uh, about the future. So if you are interested in partnering with us, uh, please head to gravityleadership.com slash partner. All the information is there um, for you to be able to donate a, um, uh, a gift. So whether you can give $5 or $50 or $500 or any multiple of those, uh, we really, really appreciate your partnership and your willingness to help us to do the things that God has called us to do gravityleadership.com slash partner. All right, let's get back into our conversation. Karen, I wonder if we can double click on that a little bit because you're, you're touching on themes here of assimilation. Um, like what, what does it mean to belong and what, you know, what, as an immigrant, what do you need to do in order to sort of signal to everybody that I want to belong, right? And then what are, uh, you know, those of us uh, who are here, what we're sort of looking for. Like when, when I was growing up, I think there was this assumption that immigrants who came over here, they they would assimilate to sort of U.S. culture, customs, norms, language, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but there was also assumption that they wanted to, you know, that they wanted to do that. And that was sort of the, uh, I don't know, the sort of implicit ticket to belonging, to be like, hey, show that you are a, you know, a, a true blue American, you know, um, and, uh, and then you can belong, that kind of thing. Um, and today, I think a lot of people seem threatened or even offended sometimes by immigrants who want to retain their language, who want to retain their customs from their country of origin. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that from your experience. What, what has been your experience? You, you sort of mentioned it there within the evangelical church, but I wonder if you could get concrete with us. Like, what's been your experience of assimilation, the expectations around that for you as an immigrant to the United States? Sure. So I want to say first that nobody tells you to assimilate. Right. It's something that you gradually learn and... Yeah pick up from the ether <laughs> yeah, around you that sure. you start to realize that when you erase or minimize or diminish parts of who you are, people are more comfortable mm. and they're more accepting of you and more likely to include you. So that becomes reinforced through a lot of different experiences. And so that's what happened to me as well. And part of it is this whole idea of the melting pot, which was um, the way that we have historically talked about immigration in the United States uh, is that you come in and you're kind of like a piece of cheese in the fondue pot. You just melt and you become part of the whole. You don't retain who you are. But the problem with that is that not only do you assimilate and pick up things like English and American culture, you also assimilate to systems of oppression 
you take it all in, the good and the bad. Yeah. And there's a tremendous loss of your own culture, your own language, your own connection mm. to your family. In my case, even my parents, uh, my mm. parents were told to only speak to us in English. And they didn't listen to that, thank goodness, because their thinking was, well, how, how are we going to communicate with them? <laughs> how are yeah. we going to, you yeah. know, be in their lives if we don't, if they don't speak um, our language? And so I sort of adopted the idea of living in two worlds, the private one and the public one. And but what happened was that I did assimilate to a lot of systems that were really harmful. And in the first book, I actually talk about how I wasn't very pro-immigrant. I really thought it was a bad thing. I had read a textbook that said we didn't need immigrants anymore, that it was burdensome to have immigrants. I sort of had that sort of Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio kind of philosophy of shut the door behind me. I was the last good one to be let in, right? <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, you know, they're great examples of assimilation where they've assimilated so much that they betray their own community, right? And when people ask me, well, what about things like Latinos for Trump? And I'm like, of course that exists. Of course, people want to belong so badly mm. and show that they're committed to it, that they even assimilate to a system that excludes and harms their own community. Yes. And so, of course, that exists. And that's really the harm of assimilation. Now, I want to say that there's no way to immigrate without any loss. There's always going to be some loss. But it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to assimilate. There are other models. And I talk in the book about integration. You can integrate into the community. You can learn English and learn to navigate the community, but also retain your own language and your own culture. You can have both. It's not an either or equation. And so, and that actually can be a very good thing. And so I think, for example, of people like Robin Wall Kimmerer, you know, who is the indigenous writer and how much her yeah. own indigenous culture has helped her to approach the natural world in a way that is good, that is life-giving yeah. for all, right? Yeah. That sustains yeah. and cares for God's creation. And that was a part of her indigenous identity. Yes. In the book, I talk about Bennett Omalu, who exposed the NFL and the concussion <sighs> and how the fact that he was on the outside, he didn't, he wasn't seduced by how big the NFL was or football being king in his city. He cared about the human beings who were harmed and he wanted to be their advocate. And so that's what can happen when we integrate. We have different eyes for seeing the culture. And you, and you may have experienced this if you go to another culture. Every culture has things that are not for life. When I went to Guatemala this summer. I spent the whole summer there. It was really interesting because I was studying Cachiquel, which is a Mayan language from the region mm. where my father's family is from. And as I was talking to my teacher, I asked him, do a lot of Guatemalans learn Cachiquel? Do they come you know, to learn from people like you? And he said, no, only people like you, only people who have left huh. and now come back. He's like, 
here there's so much discrimination against us. You know, people want to distance themselves from us. But I think the fact that I am American as well as Guatemalan and because I have learned a vocabulary here in the United States around liberation, around uh, freedom of expression, around identity and belonging, I think that helps me to bring that to Guatemala as well, right? And that's yeah. the benefit of of not being completely assimilated either to Guatemalan culture, right? Because yeah. I would adopt that as well, as many of my relatives did, who questioned, why are you studying this? Why wouldn't you study French or German? <laughs> something useful, so, something profitable, right? Right, yeah. So, yeah, assimilation, I think, is a myth because it doesn't have to be that way. And it is extremely harmful, not just to the person, but to all of society. And so in the book, I talk about the difference between Joseph in Genesis and Moses later in Exodus and the way that you see that play out. Because I don't know about you, but I always held up Joseph on this pedestal of being this amazing biblical character uh, who seemingly didn't have the flaws that someone like David, for example, had. But you can read the story differently. For example, read it from the perspective of not the people in power, not Joseph and not Pharaoh, but the Egyptians and the surrounding nations. Because everything that Joseph did, he only did for the benefit of his adopted country. And not even for the country, for Pharaoh. Yeah. Pharaoh is the only one who benefits from Joseph creating this economic system where even the Egyptians end up enslaved. They give up everything to survive the seven years of the famine that are in the story. And then eventually his own family even comes from a surrounding nation. And a couple of generations later, they end up enslaved in Egypt and so his full assimilation, his inability to really see, wait, what I'm doing here is creating a monopoly for Pharaoh. I'm not blessing all of the nations. I'm really doing something to help Pharaoh consolidate power. Yeah. And where is this going to end up? Yeah. What is going to happen? Yeah, this is one of the... Um forces or fuels that drives assimilation, which is, you know, some people refer to it as uh, empire, uh, Egypt or the U.S. Some people refer to it as supremacy culture, right, or colonialism, or even sometimes it's named more specifically as like white supremacy or whiteness, that the, that what's norming and shaping and ordering things is doing is a transgressive, violating humanity of other people. Um and in that in that reading you talk about in your book of Joseph as an instrument or a tool or complicit uh, in empire that ends up enslaving people, I think is uh, part of what it means to read. You you started out this conversation, Karen, saying how we read scripture matters, um, and and so like I think it's taken people who have felt this force to assimilate, who have resisted it. And then from that location, we're able to read the scriptures in ways that maybe I couldn't. I wasn't able to access that in the way that they could. 
Um, you you do a lot of deep theology in this book, um, and I, I wonder if, and, and a lot of it is the fruit of maybe you doing that work yourself of resisting assimilation, reckoning with the ways you have been assimilated, and then seeking to, maybe we could use the word decolonize um, your identity and decolonize your faith. Will you talk a bit about your journey, your process to to take a to do that hard work and what that's been like for you. Sure. And, you know, a lot of that work for me started with reading theologians of color, biblical scholars of color, primarily black women, especially writing about a lot about identity. Yeah. Write a lot about identity and um, the wrestling with that. And I think, you know, I'm not one that goes on social media all the time to dunk on evangelicals because there's enough of that. Um, But I think there's a lot of insidious harm done through teaching people there's only one way to be faithful and understand the scriptures. And if it isn't this way, then you're unfaithful, disobedient, heretic at the extreme, right? And I think for me, I always tell people that seminary saved my faith, which I know for a lot of people, they go to seminary and lose their faith. But um, I didn't even finish seminary. I I left with, I had two credits left (laughs) and I never went back to finish. That's why I say I attended and didn't graduate, but it really did save my faith because (laughs) it revealed to me the expansiveness of faith, all these different ways that the church has understood the Bible throughout history. And I had accepted one idea, and I didn't really fit into that worldview. Yes. The worldview where, you know, I'm not married, I don't have children. So this, what I was told the highest calling was to be a wife and mother, where where did I fit into that reality uh, without these identities? Um, And then everyone I read was uh, a white male, and I'm not against that. I've learned a lot from white males. They're made in the image of God, too. But how could it be that I couldn't ever read a theologian that looked like me? Mm -hmm. Um, How how is that possible if we're all made in God's image? And so I think that space did a lot of harm to me in terms of identity because I just felt like there was something wrong with me. There was something wrong with the way that I could not fit into this. Um, And so I needed to somehow change myself. So I kept denying parts of myself. And for example, I've always had leadership and teaching gifts, but I didn't, I suppressed them because I was told this is not what women are supposed to do. And then I was told these are the correct theologians. These are the Bible teachers that we read. Um, I think among them, the only woman might have been Beth Moore. Um, so it did me a lot of harm because my life, as as I'm sure Beth Moore is a lovely person, but my life is nothing like hers in any way. And so that to me was really hard. And so when I came to seminary and I discovered this world of so many different kinds of biblical scholars, so many different perspectives that are valid and that are faithful ways to read the Bible, 
it really did save my faith. All of a sudden, all the questions I'd had all these years, I could finally put on the table and discuss. There's no answers to some of them, but at least they were they weren't forbidden yeah. from discussion. And I could talk about the fact that what about the fact that we don't see people like me leading churches or um, you know, outside of sort of diversity kind of efforts. And so I that was the beginning for me. Now I'm not gonna say that seminaries are places where you're encouraged to read a lot of diverse authors because it's still easier. You know, in my book, I make a lot of effort to find um, scholars from them different perspectives, and it's harder. It is much harder, especially during the pandemic when you couldn't go to a seminary library. It's much harder than finding uh, the lowest hanging fruit are uh, your a lot of older white males, and so that was the beginning for me of that journey. I think the fact that my seminary happened to be in an urban area was also really helpful because there was a lot of engagement with the community and there were a lot of people that looked like me there. And so that was the beginning of the journey for me. And then working with refugees and other immigrants, I think learning intimately about the system and how it works and then recognizing that there is a theology of migration, that this is something that exists, that people study and learn about. It was dignifying to me in a way I can't even articulate that this was something important to God. And I think it's a continuous process. You know, there's a theologian named Oscar Garcia Johnson, and he says that we have been, um, there's been a colonial wound inflicted on us. And unless we heal it, uh, we, we will continue to reproduce it generation after generation, right? And this colonial wound is what you were saying. It's white supremacy. It's the idea that everything that we are is inferior. You know, one of the things I didn't share in the book was my grandmother, when, I, when she took, took me to church with her and was teaching me about the Bible, she'd always tell me to... Um, memorize the Bible in English and to pray in English. She felt that English was superior, somehow something better. Um, and where'd she get that from? You know, she just something that she just internalized. And so she'd actually say, you can learn the 23rd Psalm in English now, now that you know it in Spanish. <laughs> and <laughs> But it's in, it's everywhere around us. Um, and you see it, for example, in the way, you know, in the news recently, there's been the city council members in L.A. who are Latinx people, but who are very anti-Black and very anti-Indigenous and made these blatant racist remarks. And it's very common in our communities. And so that's part of the colonial wound that we keep reproducing. It's really self-hatred because yeah. all of us have... Black and Indigenous blood uh, because of the diaspora, right? And so it's something I'm still wrestling with and still undoing. And it's something that creeps up every now and then, and I recognize. And it's hard, frankly. You know, a lot of the people that I was close to when I was in evangelical circles, they now think I'm a heretic. <laughs> um, and it's really hard to have lost all those relationships and that community 
And it's really hard that they only accepted me as long as I assimilated to their way of thinking about the faith and any, uh, any, any deviation from that just makes me outside of that family. Right. Yeah. We'll be right back. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get back to the show. I'm thankful that you're leading. And here's why. Um, because you're brilliant and you're, and you're like helping us learn things that I would not learn on my own. I have two... Uh, Latino kids. And I feel like as a white mom, I am missing it in a lot of ways. And so I'm grateful for your voice and for your like modeling, even in this conversation, like that you're still learning and you're willing to be vulnerable with us in that is like really helpful to my heart um, as a mama, as I raise two kids who I don't want them to just be like Paul and I. Like, what does it look like to kind of give them uh, opportunities and be purposeful and being who they fully are, um, even if they're in a in a non Latino family? So, anyway, I just want to say thank you, Matt. What was, go ahead and you can ask your question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Chrissy, yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's um... My heart's with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Karen, I want to return to a comment that you made at the beginning, um, which I think is a repentance for many people. And, and that is, you said something to the effect of welcoming is not enough. Yeah. Um, there's something wrong with the metaphors we use about what is required of us, uh, meaning dominant culture people when receiving immigrants. And I think we typically use this metaphor of uh, the table fellowship, right? Invite every, everybody gets to come to the table. Um, and in your book, you do a really good job of naming why that's a deficient or insufficient picture um, for what is required to actually center immigrants in the conversation about immigration. Um, I, I know like part three is basically of the book is basically you uh, explicating that, but could you give us maybe one or two reasons why this idea, this picture we have romanticized picture of table fellowship uh, is, is not doing good work for us? Sure. So one of the things that's really interesting about table fellowship is 
typically in our culture, there's a host and there's a guest, right? And I find it interesting that Jesus really <laughs> doesn't adhere <laughs> to those social conventions. Uh, as a guest, he would come into a meal and dominate, if you will, or or change the dynamics of the room. And so in particularly in the road to Emmaus, you see that Jesus is a guest and he's invited to their table, but then he takes over and he becomes the host and they become the guests at his table. And it's a very interesting thing to think about because when we think about hospitality, we usually only think about um, that sense of hosting moving in one direction. So there's a host and there's a guest who receives. The guest is supposed to be grateful, right, and fawning and appreciative and speak well of the host, and then that's the end of the interaction. It's that um, um, the client kind of relationship that you see that was also prevalent in the ancient world. We didn't invent that. Uh, but with Jesus, you see something different. He asks people to invite uh, those who can't repay, those who are right. on the margins, right, to the mm-hmm. table. Um, and of course, in his um, economy, in his worldview, there's no, well, I'm going to offer charity to this person, and I'm a very good person for doing that. But there's a sense of he always pointed to people on the margins of society, people no one saw and no one cared about. These are the people he would point to as sources of wisdom, as sources, as people to look to, to learn. Um, And so that's what happens in this. And and his idea is that this table is reciprocal. You are a host. You're also a guest at the same time. You have something to offer. You also have something to receive. But in the rhetoric that we see around immigration, even in places where there's welcome, is that sense of welcome, the immigrant person is always the object and the native citizen is always the subject, the I welcome you. Mm. And what happens with that is that people start thinking of immigrants as having less in every way. Instead of just having a a situation that is vulnerable due to circumstances usually beyond their control, but they're still full image bearers of God who have gifts and talents and cultures and faiths, all of these things to offer. And so the hospitality only moves in one direction. It isn't reciprocal. And it reinforces the power and control of the host, right? Yeah. The sense of generosity. Um and it disempowers at the same time the immigrant person. And so I just challenge people to consider the words that we use. Um, and I don't think it's just with immigration, by the way. I was, you know, the fall is so beautiful out here in Baltimore. I've been going for a lot of walks. And I was walking through this neighborhood in D.C. recently, and I saw all of these signs that said, you know, we're so glad you're our neighbor uh, those signs that are in Spanish and Arabic and English. And I appreciate the heart and intent behind the signs, wanting people to know, hey, I'm safe. I'm not someone. But 
those people really failed to recognize, first of all, that neighborhood used to be all Central Americans and African Americans, and they've displaced all of those people. And now they're saying, you can be our neighbor, welcome. You know, and and there's something wrong with that, with that sense of being so oblivious that you don't recognize um, that this wasn't your neighborhood initially, but now you're telling people that they're welcome <laughs> um, to live there. And there was this church here in Baltimore that wanted to do this event uh, for the community. And it's a community that's changed over time. It used to be, you know, a white, um, mostly German background neighborhood. And now it's a Latino neighborhood. It's all Central Americans. And the church was very intentional in the way that they thought about this. Instead of doing a sort of welcome sign, their sign said, you know, neighbors welcoming neighbors. And they were so thoughtful about that choice. And I really appreciated that because what they were saying is this isn't our neighborhood. This is all of our neighborhood, all of us. It doesn't belong to us just because we were here a while back where we settled in Baltimore at the end, at the turn of the century, but this is the community that belongs to all of us. And that's often lacking. There's still that sense that I felt of being a guest. It was there for a reason because that's the language that we use. It's very othering. And so in the book, I talk about what does it mean then to have a reciprocal hospitality well, it means that you make thoughtful choices with words so that you don't other people and keep them always on the outside. But it also means things like you don't do things for people. You know, I worked in resettlement and it's so interesting to me how people will say things, um, you know, they're assisting in resettlement as volunteers and they all of a sudden want to take over and make decisions on behalf of people who are poor and who are immigrants. And they get upset. You know, I had people complain to me, like, they bought a TV. And I don't think that's right. It's a waste of money. And I would say, well, you know, I have a TV. It's not a need. It's a waste of money. But it's awfully nice to have, to relax, to forget the world sometimes. I said, do you have a TV? <laughs> Why can't people buy a TV with their own money? But there's an implicit there understanding that they get to make decisions on behalf of poor people um, because people are poor or the idea that people don't get to speak into and evaluate services they receive. Things are done for their communities without asking them what it is that they would want. So this same church that I was telling you about, one of the things they did during the pandemic is they asked parents in the community, what can we do to support you um, through this time that's so difficult? Because the parents, most of them were essential workers and they were still going outside the home. And a lot of the family said, we don't have internet. Is there a way that we could have the kids come to the church and have access Um to the internet so that they can do their homework. And so the church opened up um, in a way that was safe, you know, to allow the kids to come and be able to do their schooling. But to me, that's a really good example of the way that it can work. You ask people what they need. You don't make assumptions and just decide, well, what you need is this. <laughs> so let me provide it for you. But that's the way that you see it play out. And it happens a lot. Uh, a lot of decisions are made 
on behalf of people. And that really takes away from their dignity as people. And it says, I'm more person than you, right? Mm -hmm. I get to make these decisions um, for you. And so it happens a lot. I see it a lot with uh, people who work with those experiencing homelessness in a lot of different communities working with people on the margins, right? Um, You see this with something as simple as, you know, fostering, which I think is a really good thing. Um, But the idea that the child belongs with a different family rather than their own family. And some of that narrative is changing, Hmm. right? Doing everything that we can to keep people, to keep kids with their own families and supporting that instead, right? Providing a way for families to support their own. So that's an important thing to do. But we see it a lot in our culture. um, And we see it in ways that are not explicit, but that's what's happening. And that's the harm that's being done to people. Yeah. Yeah, Karen, I, um, there's so much more in part three where you name, how do we, how do we reckon with power and how do we, um, those of us with power, how do we invest, divest and empower others to do what you're saying, make decisions for their good, even when they aren't decisions we'd make, even if they'd cost us, right? Even if, in centering others, we are decentered. These are all um, part of maybe the reparative, uh, just making ways that we walk out uh, our faith in Jesus, and and you do a great job of of talking about that in part three. What maybe as we wrap up here, what are your hopes for the work that this book does? What if if someone reads this book and they and they walk away with a gift or two, what do you hope those gifts are? Yeah. Well, I think, one, I wanted people to really challenge the way they thought about immigrants and migration. Um, And I knew that it would be hard because a lot of progressive people kind of already feel like, well, I'm already, (laughs) I already believe the right things and I'm doing um, what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, But I really wanted to challenge people to consider, are we though, are we doing what we're supposed to do? And um, in particular, I wanted people to really be challenged to think about land because ultimately if you think about something like borders, they're there to say who belongs and who doesn't, right? And in immigration advocacy, there's an awful lot of Christians who kind of promote a secure border and we can have a secure border and we can, you know, serve our neighbors. And I really wanted to challenge people to think about, well, is it really a good thing for a Christian to be defending borders or nations? <laughs> especially above the well-being of actual human beings. Mm. Um, And really that's what I wanted people to do, to wrestle and reckon with a lot of the ways that we think that we welcome and we're on on the good side, let's say. But maybe we're not really thinking about this. And maybe, you know, for a lot of people, what I've seen is depending on the social group they're in, they're either pro or against immigration because they don't really know what they think. Um, 
it's not something that's preached on. They say that, you know, fewer than 20% of pastors ever preach about this. Mm. And I understand why we've set up our churches in such a way that pastors depend on their livelihood from the congregation. So saying hard things can be really challenging sometimes, depending on the community. And so I wanted people to wrestle and to be changed if that's what they were feeling the call to or the stirring toward. And I wanted also to normalize migration. It is a normal thing. People move all the time within our borders, outside of them. I met so many quote unquote digital nomads when I was in Guatemala this summer. And it is a very normal thing, especially in the world that we live in. And yet we still treat it like an anomaly. We'll still treat it like something that's different or unusual or even undesirable. Um, but in fact, it is quite normal and it is all over the Bible as well. Yeah. Well, certainly um, I can I can reflect back to you that those are gifts that it's given me. Um, as I read and as I ponder not only um, not only the thrust of your book, but very simply, Karen, your your reading of scripture and the deep theological work you're doing here uh, is also a gift that I've taken from what you're doing. So, uh, thank you for this work. Thank you for uh, this book. Um, you and I are connected on social media, and I wonder if you could share maybe if people are wanting to read more of your writing or hear more from you, where they can find you out on the internet. Sure. So I have a website, uh, karen-gonzalez.com, and it includes a link to, I do a monthly newsletter. And then I'm on mostly Twitter and Instagram at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. I am on Facebook a little bit, but not as much as the others. Yeah. So. Cool. Cool. Great. The, the book again is called Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants and Our Christian Response to immigration. Karen, thanks so much for joining us today. Okay, I need to process something because mm-hmm. she just said something that has mm-hmm. been stirring in my mama heart and I, I don't have, I, I don't know what to do with it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Brie and London were adopted out of the foster care system those are your two and kids, right? Just to be clear. Those are mine, the, yeah, the, who are... You're Lat, your Latino, Latino kids that you're right. talking about. Right, they're, they're both Hispanic. Just to make Hispanic. all the connections Yeah, for they're both listeners. from Mexico. Yep. And the reason that they were in the foster care system, um, without going into like a lot of detail, was that you know their mom wasn't making good decisions and their dad was an illegal immigrant and couldn't oh. have them. And oh, I think, geez. from what oh. I know of him, I've met him a few times... Um, and my broken Spanish and his broken English, like we don't communicate awesome, but we really try even to this day, like we're on what, what's up at, um, he would have been like, he would have taken care of them. He he would have been like a competent dad to have had to have them. And because he was illegal, he couldn't. And so they went into the foster care system and he never got him back. And so there's this weird conflict in my heart of, yes, 
foster care, like if, if they could have gone with somebody who would have protected them and, you know, su supported them and given them what they needed, it would have been good because honestly, adoption always comes out of brokenness, always. Right. And at the same time, they're my kids and I love them. And so because yeah. I think, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that because I agree yeah. with what she's saying. And yet my experience um, of my own family is wrapped up in that. So yeah. what do you say to that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, first of all, just I appreciate you sharing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I. Chrissy, I don't. I feel um, like I'm not the one to say something to that. Yeah. Does Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I, it and feels actually, like I mean, that's for me why. That my who? Yeah. <laughs> my opinion. <laughs> my opinion uh, not only is probably not tr good, but it's uh, how helpful would it be? <laughs> mm -hmm. Um. Well, but as your friend, kinda... as your friend, as your friend, I, sorry, Chrissy, I keep talking over you. Um, as your friend, I, I wouldn't wish another mom on your kids. Yeah. Well, and that, I guess that's the conflict. And with that being spoken, I need to learn from people about mm -hmm. immigration and in speaking about it and not just welcoming, but like what does – how does my life and the actions I take and the reactions and the vocabulary, how does that change so that I'm loving, I think, to my own yeah, children but sure. also to my friends um, mm -hmm. that are immigrants. So I just feel like I have a lot to learn. And so yeah. I guess, listener, if you're – you're listening to me try to process this as me being a, a verbal processor and not really having the answers and saying, I need I need Latino friends yeah. who are immigrants to keep teaching me and keep opening yeah. up my eyes and and for me to be able to process this out loud and and so I guess thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, Christy, I, I just I appreciate you sharing it because I think like there's no ideal situation, right? Like you like you said, adoption always like there's always some sort of brokenness back yeah. back in the stream of why an adoption is necessary. And probably you could say the same about immigration. Yes. Right? Like even even the fact that people feel the need to uproot their lives and complete, you know, like I, I can just only imagine how disruptive it would be and just disorienting and lonely and heartbreaking and grief-filled to, you know, completely uproot your life from your and so that's got to be rooted in brokenness as well. And so, um, so anyway, I, I think the only thing I would, um, the only additional thing I would say is just that I think it's faithful to, to just see all of that and to, it's okay not to have answers about it, mm -hmm. but just to see all of it and to, and to recognize that we are seeking to be faithful inside of a world that is broken. This isn't an ideal situation. And, um, it's complex to learn what it means to, to love well. Yeah, that's um, well said. Yeah. And so then the, the goal then of our lives isn't to be impeccably virtuous because right. we are deeply complicit and caught up 
in systems that harm. And we are making the best of bad situations all the time. Yes. Right? So this is why we need wisdom and love and a willingness to learn. Yeah. Right? Rather than, you know, just knowledge and the right behaviors and making sure that we double down on how right we are. What you're navigating, we're all navigating a deeply complex issue where the ideal doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <sighs> well, there's more to learn, friends. Gosh. Yep. Thanks. Always more to learn. Uh, th- thanks for sharing that, Christy. Really appreciate you sharing yeah. that. Yeah. So good. <clears throat> you know, you guys, maybe you can help me here as we close. I'm having a really hard time. People ask me what Sharon does, my wife, <clears throat> and I'm having a really hard time, like, succinctly saying what she does. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, because... <laughs> she's a, well, she's an accountant. Nah. It's really easy, Christy, right? No, it's not. That doesn't really capture it. <laughs> it's because she sells seashells by the seashore. And it's just hard to say. You know? What she does. It's difficult. I always, I always mispronounce something. Physically, physiologically speaking. Yes. Yep. Sharon sells seashells by the seashore. <laughs> See, it's hard See? to say. See, it's hard to say. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Makes no money at it, really. Uh, to be honest, yeah. no, people yeah. are not Nobody, buying. Nobody's. They're like, why wouldn't I? There's just ten thousand free on, ones by, right by here. myself. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why are you selling this to me? There's one right over there. That's anyway. Um, anyway, um, everybody. Just to be just to be clear, Christy, that was Matt's attempt at doing a joke at the end of our <laughs> podcast. Okay. I was trying. Hit stop. Stop recording. Okay. Then. All right. I was just waiting for. I was waiting for the the the, the I laugh for the that light bulb. One very much. Yeah. Did yeah. I? You were just. Sorry. I think, the look on your face, listener, you couldn't see this, but the look on Christy's face basically said, oh, oh that was man. a joke, but it wasn't very good. Oh, Is the, was that right. a joke? Right. Was that a joke? Uh, anyway. All good. Well. All right. Well, hey, um, valiant attempt, Matt. Um, I, this, again, I think speaks to the complexity of our world I'm happy. and the fact that we're never dealing with an ideal My situation. My conscience is clear. I feel really good about all that. Nothing you can say will detract from my uh, gratuitous good pleasure. Feelings? You're good vibes? All right. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear you've got some good vibes. I'm vibing. Going. All right. All right, y'all. Hey, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. And about this time, Friday afternoon, it's about 2 p.m., I start to, I start to feel uh, vibing as well. I start to feel like I'm, I'm vibing. It's the weekend. I, yeah. It's the weekend. And, you know, um, as Christy likes to say, it's finish, finish line Friday. Line Friday. Yeah. So, <laughs> listener, if you're listening to this on a day that it isn't mm-hmm. Friday, mm-hmm. Um, Friday's coming. Yeah. And you'll be vibing just like we are. Yep. All right, everybody. See you all Peace. next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. 
Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.